morning, Godly. Good to see everybody. Uh, as I look out on the congregation, I see that a lot of folks are at home today. So uh, that probably means they're watching online this morning. So if you're watching online in the comfort of your home, uh, we want to welcome you to our services today. And thank you for making time uh, out of your life. I think, it, I think it's a privilege myself uh, to be able to come into God's presence and to be able to worship him at any time. Uh, for in his word, he tells us to draw near to him and that if we will draw near to him, he will draw near uh, to us. And so that as we begin our services today, that's what we want to do. We want to open our hearts and minds to meet with God. And in the process, we will tell God how much we love him, care for him. And then he will tell us what he wants us to know. And then I think in many times our response is to confess and to recognize our shortcomings and to once again uh, uh, be be joined in fullness with him as we seek to know him better. I want to read a text that comes out of the, the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, it comes out of chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 22. And you'll recognize the uh, formula that often God uses with prophets. Thus saith the Lord. Speak. Thus saith the Lord, even the carcass of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. And thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come in uh, uh, to your, your church, with your church, to gather with, with those in the church. And to give you glory. For Lord, you are our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. And Lord, might we glory in that we know you. And that we're seeking to know you more day by day. And Lord, that we'll not let anything get in between us and you. That we'll seek to continue to know you better. Uh, to seek to see where you're working around us, uh, to be listening for your still small voice, and Lord, to be obedient when, when you call us to join you, when you call us to speak a word for you, uh, to share Jesus with the lost, uh, to uh, help someone in need, whatever it is, Lord, that you've called us to. Might we glory in these things. And might we glory in the fact that we know you. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will fill up our hearts and minds with yourself today. And we'll walk away knowing that we've met with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Say hello to your brothers and sisters this morning. Good morning. If y'all go ahead and start making your way back to your seats, please. I promise I'll be super brief. First off, super proud of everyone who braved the cold this morning. Um, this is not something I have ever experienced, so this is fun. Um, but you get to get warmed up next week when you stay for our chili cook-off and our dessert auction. So please make sure you come hungry. Uh, for that, it'll be after service next week. All the funds will be going to support the youth. It'll be a great time. And also bring your checkbook because there's going to be some amazing desserts, including Miss Angie's Banana Pudding. <laughs> for all other announcements, uh, please refer to your bulletin. And then if anything should happen with weather, um, we'll be communicating that to you as well. So just be on the lookout for all that stuff. If you'll go ahead and stand, we are going to continue to worship together as a church family. We've gathered in this day. We've gathered in your name. We're calling out to you. Your glory like a fire. Your heart. 
Gracious God, we come to you this morning with our hearts full of thanksgiving that we have the opportunity to gather together in your house, even on this cold, blistery day, to worship you as a family and to offer back our praise to you for all the goodness that you give us every day of our life. And thank you for Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Miss Lisa's going to Children's Church. Anyone like to go? We got a few takers. As we think about the new year, you ever wondered why people celebrate the passing of time? You ever thought about that? Is it just another excuse to have a party, or is there something to it? According to an article in Psychology Today, New Year's resolutions are an example of universal human desire to have some control over what lies ahead, because the future is unsettlingly unknowable. To counter that worrisome powerlessness, we do things to take control. We resolve to diet and exercise. That's something I need to resolve to do, especially since I've been eating like Eddie Elephant. or to quit smoking, or to start saving. It doesn't even matter whether we hold our resolve and make good on these promises. Committing to them, at least for a moment, gives us a feeling of more control over the uncertain days to come. Now, that's one guy's take on it. Yet at the end of the day, it seems to me that somewhere in our subconscious mind is the reality that as time continues to pass by, as the clock continues to tick, our days are fewer in number. And therefore, we take account of our lives. And as we do that, we realize that some things need to change. Some things would be beneficial for us if we did change. And hence, the resolutions we make. Resolutions to give us a better year than the one we left behind. When we turn to the third chapter of the, the letter to the Philippians in your Bible, Paul tells the believers at Philippi a little bit about his own personal accounting and the resolutions that followed. You see, they're very closely related, this accounting and this resolving. And so the hence the title of our message is accounting and resolving because they're related. In other words, in order to resolve to make a change, you have to first take account of the way things are. And that way, you can count the cost and make a decision regarding whether or not making that change is worth it, is valuable to you. For example, if I stop eating dessert at every meal, will the pounds I lose be worth it? Well, it just depends on if I've got Connie's cheesecake in front of me or not, okay? Or Amy's uh, banana pudding, okay? Well, it might not be worth it, okay? So I have to make that uh, decision. Behind all these resolutions is a search for that which is truly the most beneficial or valuable. So we're going to see in our text that Paul taught the Philippians to recognize and live for uh, that which is truly valuable, 
rather than for the things that are going to pass away. So keep that in the back of your mind as we look at our, our text for today. But with these things in mind, I want you to ask yourself the question, what do I value most? Who or what do I value most? Paul reminds his readers once again of the importance of pursuing that which is most valuable. So as we look at our text this morning, we're going to find at least four underlying questions that will help us discover that which we seek. So if you have your Bible, open to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. I want to encourage you to bring your Bible with you when you come. I know a lot of people use their, their phone for their Bible. Uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of Bible apps on the phone, and that's great. Uh, but I want to challenge you to bring a hard copy, your Bible, okay? And bring your study Bible, your devotional Bible, your reading Bible. Bring it with you when you come. And one of the things, I, I love those, those Bible app phones, and all the different translations are very helpful to me. But one of the things I found, it's very difficult to make a note in one of those. But if you have a, a pencil in your hand and your Bible in front of you, you can, you can underline something, circle something, or make a note. So the first question I want us to is this. Will you take time to consider what is most valuable in your life? Now that seems like an important thing to do, doesn't it? Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So as Paul begins, he, he calls the people, uh, uh, he reminds the people to rejoice in the Lord. And you will find that many times in Paul. You will find him speaking about joy and how to have joy. And do you ever wonder why he talks so much about being joyous and having joy amidst hard trials? I think part of the reason why is because it's something that's so easily robbed from us. And many times we don't realize it. We don't realize that this, this life that, that the Lord wants to give us can so easily be robbed away. And many times it's done by unexpected big problems. Things that are sort of earth-shattering for us. And I think in many ways these events that pop into our lives, they sort of blind us a little bit. It's like someone took all of the issues of life and they confined them to a microscope. Well, you know and I know that when you're looking through a microscope, you got pretty limited vision, don't you? You can see what's right there in that little circle. You can't see anything outside of it. And that sort of makes us a sitting target, an easy target. Hard to see the big picture when a problem is placed under a microscope. Some of you may know a man named Dan Curry. He's the, the area rep for our church for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. And I noticed on Facebook this week that he began a post with, I've lost the love of my life. And it appears that about a week ago, his wife started having upper respiratory problems. And after three days, they continued to get worse and worse, and he finally took her to the ER. 
and they tried to intubate her, but her throat was too swollen. And while they were doing the tracheotomy, her heart stopped. And through lots of heroic efforts to try to, to get it going, they, they were unable to. And to think, one week ago, he woke up and everything was fine. And now, in the midst of that tragedy, it appears that things are not fine. But let me ask you a question. Even in a tragedy like this, and whatever you're going through, or whatever you've gone through, or whatever you will go through, if we step back for just a moment and we look at the big picture, is God still on his throne? Is he still the creator? Will he redeem still anyone who comes to him by faith? Will he forgive any sin that you bring to him? Will he help you over it and repent? Yes, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as you saw in your Bible study this morning, God is not a man that he should change his mind. No, God is sovereign. He's on his throne. As I think about Dan this morning, I think about it'd be good for us to pray for him. I want to stop right here, and I want you to do that. Father, I thank you for your great love and your mercy that you extend to us. And Lord, you have called us together to support one another. And I thank you for him, for, for Brother Curry and his wife and their service to you all these years. So Lord, I pray a special prayer uh, for him and his family today. That the assurance of salvation and victory in heaven will become so real to them. And Lord, that your comforting Holy Spirit will be with them in a special way today and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. So we find that sometimes our problems can take up our field of vision. Paul gives them an imperative command to rejoice, even in the midst of those who are causing them hardship. You see, one of the problems that Paul faced everywhere he went, almost everywhere he went, were certain Jews uh, that were very legalistic. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Well, they were the kind of people uh, that like to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. I don't know if you've ever run into anybody like that before, but I've run into a few in my years, especially having been in ministry for nearly 30 years. Okay. It seems that there will be certain individuals that have this standard in their mind and what is right and what is wrong. They don't mind telling everybody else about it. And this was the case with Paul. There were those uh, of the circumcision. In other words, they were, uh, they were Jews of Abraham's descent. And they were so focused on keeping the law and all the extra rules the rabbis gave them that they wanted to combine salvation into faith in Jesus Christ along with keeping all the rules and if you'll do both of these things, then you can be a good Christian, okay? And they were going to let everybody know that that was required if you were going to be a Christian. That was required if you're going to be a member of the church. That was required if you're going to be saved. It was really kind of a false gospel, sort of a, a heresy. And so Paul is very adamant uh, when he speaks about uh, these folks. As a matter of fact, in our text, he calls them dogs. Now, I don't want you to think uh, 
about your, your pet at home, okay? Who has a pet at home that, that's in the house, their dog? Or maybe outside, okay? You love your dog? Yeah, you go out of your way to take care of him, make sure he gets the kind of food he wants. We have a pug, Lisa babies that dog like he was a child, okay? And that's why sometimes when I come in there and say, hey, buddy, it's time to go to bed, and I give him the old direction, sometimes he'll go, but he'll go, Arr! so I don't want to go, but I know you're the man, you're the alpha male in this house, so I'm going, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a mangy, flea-bitten street mutt, okay? You've probably seen those from time to time in a back alley somewhere, and they kind of walk around with a scowl on their face that looks like they'd just rather bite you than do anything. That's what he's talking about. When a person uh, claims to be a Christian, but they walk around uh, devouring people with their words and, and biting people, it makes you wonder if they're really a Christian at all. But this is the kind of legalism that he's facing uh, as he goes uh, from place to place. So he's very, very uh, 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 curt as he talks about it. So he's talking about these Jews that are putting all these extra regulations on there, combining faith and works together. A dangerous te teaching. And the reason why is because people could be led to believe that I'm going to heaven uh, because, well, yeah, I'm a good person. Okay? I keep all the rules and the regulations rather than trusting Jesus Christ alone to save them. And Paul knew ex from experience that keeping the law and the rules without Jesus was useless. How did he know that? Because he did it. He did it. He was better than most Jews for many years. As you think about Pharisee, those who kept the law and did it very religiously, Paul would have been at the top of the heap. I mean, he would have been the guy. And if anyone had a right to claim that doing good would get someone to heaven, it would have been Paul. Before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was putting his faith in many ways in his own self-righteous efforts. And he truly believed that he was worshiping and serving the one true God. But we know from the text of the New Testament and his testimony that that actually wasn't the case. Because actually what he was doing is persecuting the one true God. And still today, many, especially in the, the world of Islam, have a bifurcated view of God. They say, we worship the one God, Allah. Okay? And you and I know that if you reject Jesus Christ, you just rejected the one true God. So if you want to know God, you got to know Jesus. In verse 4, he's basically saying, you say we must be good Jews to be saved. Well, friends, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just as Israelite law requires. I'm from the Hebrew race, a pure-blooded Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin which meant he was from uh, the tribe of Israel's first king that we studied about this morning, King Saul. And by the way, his name was Saul before it was changed to Paul. So based on his inheritance alone, he was the man. But what about his good deeds? Well, as far as keeping the law, he says, I was blameless. What did that mean? 
It meant that, that either I have kept all the laws and all the 613 extra rabbinic rules, okay, or I made the proper sacrifice to make up for it. Okay? I'm covered. I'm either covered by the fact that I did good or I did good in making the sacrifice to make it okay. But here's where Paul's accounting takes a twist. Takes a twist. Just imagine the credit side of the ledger as he's talking about how, how good a Jew he was. I mean, it's just really stacking up. And a lot of people try to live their lives like that. In terms of what, where, will I go to heaven or not, it's really all about stacking up some good deeds on a list in their mind. And there are a lot of Americans that live that way, hoping to be good enough, maybe. When he adds it all up, in his mind, it equals to zero. What? How in the world is that possible? How, how, how does this great life that you live, Paul, how, how does that become zero? How does it become zero? Well, Paul calls it rubbish. Rubbish. Uh, there are various translations. Some might say garbage. There are some that say dung. But if you want to boil it down to just the crudest terms, dog crap. That's pretty rough, isn't it? Well, that, that's really what he's talking about. He's like, you can take all those good things that I did, and it's just like a pile of poop compared to what it was really valuable. You see, you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. You can't add anything to it. You know, to add anything to it, but in a roundabout way to say, Jesus, your sacrifice was insufficient. Can you imagine somebody saying that to God who gave their life for them? Well, Lord, I know you died for me, but I'm going to help you out anyway. How arrogant and ignorant that is. Christ alone, no other way. You know, today there are those who come from a tradition in Protestantism and say, well, you know, uh, I was baptized as a baby, pedo baptism, infant baptism, so if, that if anything ever happens to me, I'm okay, I'm in. Okay. But of course, we know from Scripture that that's not there. It's not even in there. I challenge you, go find that infant baptism in the Bible for salvation. You just won't find it. And yet, there are others, well-meaning, who say, well, you know, uh, the Bible teaches that uh, if you'll come give your heart to Jesus by faith alone, and then follow him with baptism, then you'll have salvation. Now, is baptism important? Why, yes, Jesus commanded it. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who ever came to faith in Jesus Christ who was never baptized but went to heaven? Well, that old thief on the cross, you remember. You know why? Because faith alone in Christ is what saved you. Baptism is your first step of obedience in obeying what Christ has commanded you. Christ identified himself with us in baptism, and we identify ourselves with him in baptism. For just as he was uh, buried in, uh, in the ground for three days and rose again, so that's a picture, a symbolic picture. We go under the water, our old man is gone, and the new man is raised to life in Christ. So, that, like I said, there are some who have well-meaning ideas, but they're just wrong about the Bible. 
There are some say, well, no, it's more than that, preacher. You, you've got to go to confession. You've got to go see the priest down at the church and let him pray for you. Okay? And you've got to follow the dictates of all the sacraments of the church. And if you don't do that, then you, you might not make it. Well, of course, uh, most of that you won't find in the Bible either. Only trusting Christ alone will save you. That's it. The Bible clearly teaches it. Paul says, I tried to earn my way to heaven. It was all for naught. Really, that's what he's saying. But when he met Jesus on that Damascus road, he took account of his life. And I wonder what Paul was thinking as he was struck temporarily blind by a great light. And then he was led to the house of a man named Judas on Straight Street. I'd like to get into his mind and just listen to him think for a minute. You know, I really thought I was doing right. I was just going to go and round up some of those people of the way that weren't following God's word. They weren't keeping the extra rules. And I really was zealous for God somehow I missed it because when someone who was obviously God spoke to me in this vision he said I was persecuting him and in no way did I think I was persecuting God he said I was kicking against the goads as though I were doing something wrong and surely I, I didn't think I was now I have to rethink things if Jesus Christ really is Lord I'm going to have to go back and see how that fits into the scriptures and see what it really means. Friends, what you do with Jesus in your theology is of utmost importance. Now, I think one of the greatest mistakes that was made uh, by the Southern Baptist Conventions back in the, about 2000 is when they rewrote uh, part of the Baptist faith and message. They changed an instrumental part of our interpretation of Scripture. Because in the 1963 version of the Baptist Faith and Message, it says the criterion by which we'll interpret the Bible is Jesus Christ. And that was removed and replaced with something else. And friends, here's what I want you to know. The Bible from beginning to end is interpreted through Jesus Christ. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I want you to know, when I look at the Scriptures and I interpret them, I interpret them through the lens of Jesus Christ and what it means, and as I believe we all should. So Paul has met Jesus on the road and he's, re, he's forced to take an account and think about what's most valuable in life. But you know, in order for him to pursue it, he had to change course, didn't he? Well, I can't wait until I can see again. And as soon as I can see again, why, I'm going to finish this mission. We're going to Damascus. We're going to continue to round up these Christians. I don't know who that was for spoke, but he ain't getting in my way of doing what I want to do. No, when Jesus spoke, he listened. Even when pagans, uh, kings like 
Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus heard God speak, they did what he said. But in order for him to do that, he had to take account and change directions. So I want to ask you this morning a second question. Are you willing to make a change in your life in order to pursue that which is most valuable? Paul did. He took stock of his life. He knew he needed to make a change. I want to ask you, have you taken stock of your life? A sad thing to me is that so many people live their lives and they never take stock. A new year rolls around and they go to the big party and, uh, you know, they have this big old celebration, but they never really think about how things were last year and how things could be next year. Well, there's some things in my life I don't like. Uh, you know, there's some, some ways that I could be better, but they never really ever think about how to make it happen. And then many times if they make a resolution, they never keep them because they haven't really taken stock of what's valuable and what's most important. Many people are just trying to be good in some ways. And I wonder how many people will be turned away at the judgment seat of Christ because they thought they could be good enough. And they will hear Jesus say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Have you made Jesus your Savior? Have you made him your Lord? That's what Paul did when he got saved. He accepted Jesus' payment for sins. They were wiped away uh, along with all of his acts of goodness and self-righteousness. Jesus wipes away all of a person's sins if they come to him in faith and repent. Confess their sin and turn away from their sins. But Paul's not finished with his message. He wants to talk to them about his resolution. He tells us about his accounting, but he also talks about the resolution. When Paul considered his life and made a change in order to follow Jesus, he began to see, really see for the first time. Before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he thought he had good spiritual vision. He thought he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. But the truth of the situation is he was actually spiritually blind. You see the irony here? Because then when he was actually made physically blind, he actually started to actually see spiritually for a change. Now that he'd obeyed the command, God gave him eyesight. And so he's rethinking the word of God in light of Jesus. For Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. What Paul needed to do was compare his life to Jesus, which leads us to a third question. Are you willing to compare your life to the standard of Christ? Not to the standard of your grandparents, or maybe your parents, or maybe some religious figure, or some pastor, or some other good Christian that you know, or maybe even an idea about who God is. Because a lot of people have a false standard of who God is that they've built into their own mind. And in many ways, they've built God in their own image. God always agrees with me because I'm always right. Okay? You have to have a clear view of who it is you're comparing yourself to. And that's where the Bible is so helpful, such a blessing. For example, I can turn over to the Sermon on the Mount and I can get Jesus' standard, can't I? Hard to read, 
convicting, very difficult to live up to, but he makes no qualms about what the standard is. But you know what gets in the way of all that? Pride. Pride says I'm pretty good. I'm better than most people. I'm smarter than people too. Reminds me of a story I read uh, in one of Chuck Swindoll's books when he talks about how he struggled with pride. I want to share a part of that with you. Uh, It's very illustrative, but it's also very humorous. He said, pride keeps us from asking for help. We love to leave the impression that no matter what, we can handle it, no help wanted. He goes on to say, I remember when my family lived in New England, we were not accustomed to snow in the winter. We found ourselves somewhat confused when we faced our first wintry blast. How appropriate today is it's a wintry blast. He says, for example, I couldn't figure out why people didn't park on the street. I thought, that's the best place in the world, but nobody parks there. In fact, there there are no no parking signs anywhere. So I parked on the street. I remember being sort of proud of the original idea I had when I locked the car that night. That was about the time when the snow began to fall. In fact, it snowed all night. It never dawned on me that snow plows worked the street all night, pushing back the fallen snow. The next morning when I crawled out of our warm bed, I discovered why nobody parked on the street. I looked out front and thought somebody had stolen my car. Stunned to find huge amounts of crusted snow and ice on both sides of the street, I took my pick and shovel and began to do archaeological work in hopes of finding a blue four-door sedan. And after digging like mad for 20 minutes, I finally got to something hard. That's my color, must be my car. About that time, a friend drove by. He stopped, smiled, rolled down the window and asked, Hey, Chuck, can I help you? I immediately said, No, thanks. I'm doing fine. He shrugged and drove off. About a half hour later, I wondered why I had not said yes. The simple answer was, I was proud. I was proud. I could dig out my own car, thank you. Stupid pride. I finally got down to the car and found the windows were frozen over with ice. My first thought was, it's dumb to stand here and scrape off all that ice. So I went inside and got a bucket of steaming hot water and dumped it all over the front window. Not only did the ice come off, but so did the windshield. I was stunned as it shattered with a loud bang and fell into the front seat. So that's why everyone scrapes their windows. You know what the first thing I did when that window busted? I looked around to see if anyone saw it. Pride. Pride, plain and simple. I didn't want anyone to know what a foolish thing I had done. Let me tell you, when I drove that car to the glass shop, I had clear vision. It was 10 degrees in the, in the car, but I had clear vision. You know, the truth of the matter is, if we had time, we could all stop and tell a story or two that would sound very similar to that. Because it's kind of built into us, isn't it? In our sinful humanity, in our fallenness, we want to compare ourselves to everybody else and, and keep up appearances. I think there's even a British sitcom called Keeping Up Appearances where everything revolves about what does it look like? What does it look like for everybody else? 
when the truth of the matter is, to God anyway, what is it? It's not about what it looks like. It's about what it is. And that day on that road to Damascus, it's as though Jesus were saying to Paul, Paul, it looks like you're doing a really good job. Let me tell you what you're really doing. You're persecuting me. And let me show you a better way. Take account of your life and resolve to change. And let me show you how to do it. When something like literal scales fell off Paul's eyes, he really did have clear vision. And then instead of continuing to do what he'd been doing, he did something remarkable. He made a decision to change. To change. To compare himself to Jesus as a true standard and follower. I wonder today, is Jesus your standard? It's a good question. Well, Paul goes on to say, after having followed Jesus many years, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I've suffered loss, the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Yes, when Paul compared himself to Jesus, he realized that all the things that he counted as valuable before were rubbish. And so what he did is he assigned new values to his life. He compared himself to Jesus and resolved to put Jesus first. So finally, we want to ask, will you resolve to put Jesus first above all things? And if so, what would it look like? What does it mean to put Jesus first, to put him above all things? Well, Paul tells us in verse 10 what it looks like. He says, this is what I'm after, this is what I value, this is what I'm pursuing, and this is what you need to do too, okay? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to resurrection from the dead. So essentially what he's saying is I'm going to do four things. I'm resolved to four things. First, to know Christ more. To know Christ more. And obviously this goes beyond mere knowledge about Jesus Christ. There are many historical facts uh, and many historians that have talked about Jesus. People can know a lot of facts about Jesus. There are people in churches all over America today who know a lot of facts about Jesus. But knowing a lot of facts about Jesus and knowing Jesus are two different things. Okay? They're two very different things. You know, even Mormons claim to be Christians, but they don't understand Jesus to be the same Jesus that you and I understand Jesus to be. They understand Jesus to be the good Mormon Jesus. Okay? And we don't add anything to Jesus, just Jesus. Okay? So it's important, the Jesus that you follow. Now, Paul, the knowledge he's talking about begins at salvation and grows from there. Okay? You remember when Jesus prayed for his disciples and us before he went to the cross? Part of it's recorded in John 17, specifically verse 3. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. That's knowing. That's knowing. Paul had met the one true God, and it created a hunger in him to know God more intimately. As a matter of fact, we sang about that this morning. The words of David from Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. And I know that uh, many of you uh, who attend Bible study probably picked up your Bibles this week, and as you looked into the life of Saul and you began to read that story, you know, how many times have we read that story? And every time, God's Word just pulls you right into it. And you just want to know God. You want to know what happened. It's like, I've read it many times. I, I kind of know what happens, but I want to see what happens. But that's the Word of God. That's hungering after God. And His Word becomes alive, and you just want to pull it right into you. And then when you read it, you don't say, God, what are you saying to me? How does this apply to me today? Is there anything there? Or First and foremost, it shows me you, God. It's about you. He wants to know Jesus more. He wants to know Christ's power working in and through him. He desired to live by Jesus' power. Friends, the degree to which you and I experience his power is directly correlated to how much we depend on him. If you depend on him a lot, you'll experience him a lot. In your hardest moments, in your, in your moments of joy. It's all related to where you put him in your life. He's always available. He's always there. But we need to become aware of his presence. Jesus said, with all things God are possible, on the other hand, apart from me, you can do nothing. With Jesus' power, there are no limits. But that's not where it stops. Now, this is an interesting part to me. And you've probably wondered about it, too. He says, I want to know and share in Christ's sufferings. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Can't wait to get up this morning and go suffer for Jesus. Why are we going to suffer today? We're even careful that we have the right cereal we're going to be eating. We're not thinking about suffering. But Paul recognizes that through suffering, he can know Jesus. Now, now what does that mean? How's that even possible? Well, think about it this way for a minute. You remember that text over in Matthew where Jesus said, look, if you've run into somebody who's thirsty and you give them a cup of water, it's as though you're giving it to me. If you run into somebody that's suffering from hunger and you give them something to eat, it's as though you're doing that for me. If there's someone in jail and you go to visit them, it's as though you're doing it for me. In other words, I am there in those suffering moments. And when you suffer with me, You'll get to know me in a way that you never have before. And you know the truth of the matter is, though there's no way Paul could have known it at the moment, Jesus answered his prayer from the very beginning about knowing him and suffering. For in the beginning he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Remember when he told that to Ananias? Even before. Helen Rosevere was a British medical doctor who worked for many years 
as a missionary in Zaire. And during the revolution of the 1960s, she faced brutal beatings, physical torture. And on one occasion, uh, she was about to be executed, and she feared that God had forsaken her. And in that moment, she sensed the Holy Spirit saying something very directly to her. And she recorded it. Twenty years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings. They're my sufferings. All I ask is the loan of your body. Philip Ryken continues, the privilege of serving Christ to her suffering overwhelmed Dr. Rosevere. After she was delivered, she wrote about her experience with God. He didn't stop the suffering. He didn't stop the wickedness, the cruelties, the humiliation, or anything. It was all there. The pain was just as bad. The fear was just as bad. But it was altogether different. It was in Jesus, for him, and with him. You see the difference there? Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his suffering. And then finally, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. You know, who you, you grow up wanting to be like oftentimes is mom or dad or some other hero. But you want to be like those that you admire the most, that you value. Paul understood that he wanted to be like Jesus, the greatest value. That's his ultimate goal. Becoming like him in his death, being conformed to his death, which is a continual process for a Christian, dying to self, living to him. Can't be done alone, has to be done in his strength. So as we close this morning, I want you to ask, who or what is most valuable in my life? And is it Jesus? What changes can I make to follow Jesus more effectively in 2024? Am I comparing myself to Jesus or some other standard, maybe one I've created? And am I resolved to put Jesus first above all things? You see, rather than making a re resolution with the idea of gaining more control over things in my life, Maybe I ought to make my resolutions with the idea of letting him have more control in my life. Seems like a better plan to me. Why? Because he's God. He knows what's coming tomorrow and you don't. He knows every victory and every hardship. And he has promised to go with it through him. He'll go with you through it. That's the way I'd rather travel. Whether good or bad, knowing Jesus is with me. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray, especially as David wrote, that we will hunger and thirst for you this coming year. Like a thirsty deer at a water brook. And not leaving that brook till we're satisfied for the moment knowing, Lord, that we're going to return to it over and over and over again. And that there is a vast supply in those streams that lead to you. 
merciful Father, speak to each of our hearts as we roll these things around in our mind and meditate on them. Lord, help us to make these discoveries about the most valuable and then help us to make the resolution we need to make to make lasting change that gives you glory and honor. We pray it in Christ's name today. Amen. Stand to your feet for just a few moments. We'll not keep you long. Just want to provide that opportunity for someone to respond and, and to be prayed for. We're available for that too. What's God saying to you? Stevie, will you please lead us? you as you go home and stay warm and uh, any changes to our schedule that we need to make we will let Judy know it and she will put it out to everybody okay if you have any questions you can call either Judy or myself and we'll try to get the answer for you okay all right well let's go forth singing as, as our praise team leads us since Jesus came into my heart since Jesus came into my heart 